Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple, and this week I talked to Katie Schwartz about channeling challenging personal experience into art and more specifically playwriting. We delve into large themes around gaslighting, the importance of trusting one's gut, and the complexities of culpability and complicity. We explore what it means to rewire memories, experience betrayal, and to trust the wrong people, and address the bystander effect, what one's responsibility is to responding to harm, and the gray areas of human judgment. Plus, we discuss finding joy amidst the overwhelming and relentless nature of these large topics and the importance of authentic self-care. This episode requires a content warning. We do discuss Me Too-related topics around sexual assault, grooming, parasocial relationships, and abuse. So please, as always, take care of yourself. Enjoy. Katie Schwartz, welcome to the space. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, really cool. I don't think I've ever sung it like that. And I don't know, that wasn't really like a little jingle, a jingle, but uh, yeah, here we are. Um, for anybody who does not know you, who are you today? Um, I am a playwright and actor, mostly focusing on plays that have to do with being queer and have some uh, element of magical realism to them. That was never really my intention when I set out, but it has been a uh, consistent in pretty much everything I've written, which I think just says a lot about where my brain is at. Um, which is where, do you think? Like somewhere up in the ether. Who knows? Like <laughs> like uh, wishing that I was in Middle Earth, wishing that I was somewhere where I could brandish a wand. Um, okay. Things like that. Uh, were you like a Lord of the Rings? I mean, Harry Potter before oh, was it probably, oh, yeah. you know, like were yeah. all of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. All my Harry Potter stuff came down. It's gone. It's so it's yeah. really, what a period of my life that was so, so, so glorious and fond. Yeah. That I just have so many feelings about now. Yeah, as do me too. So many It's of really us. heartbreaking. And I'm definitely guilty of being one of the people who when trans folks like very first on Twitter were like, um, JK Rowling is like liking all this transphobic shit that I was like, oh, she's old, mm-hmm. like whatever. Yeah. Um, no, well, cause it's hard to rewire turf. memory, you know, like yeah. for so many of us, it was, a, I, I mean, I truly like, I grew up with that book. I would, it would oh, come yeah. and my, my whole family knew not to talk to me for the 24 hours <laughs> or less that it took me to read yeah. it. And then I would emerge again after like, and we grew up, it's just so when you, when it's so etched to your memory, it's very, yeah. it, it's a hard thing um, to rewire or to, to well, unlearn or to reassociate. Oh, for sure. That's like the biggest struggle. Everyone, like, it's like a communal struggle right now yeah. for everyone that yeah. grew up with that. I was also always the same age as Harry. Same or around. Oh, yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made me feel like when I was first reading them, I was like, oh, these were written for me. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think this is actually an interesting segue to like, we're talking about, you know, things that happen to us and, um, replaying those things in our brains and, um, putting names to things that maybe we thought were one thing and maybe were different or learning something new and having to, relearn the way that that works in our lives and integrating all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious to throw that to you with the lot of the work that you do has to do with that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's funny on the um, most literal level, actually um, the first play I ever wrote, The Coward, um, initially 
like the character in that had this incredibly strong connection to Harry Potter and there was a lot of like parallels drawn between relationships in Harry Potter um Mm -hmm. and it was like a huge part of the play and I have just recently like that that play has gone on to to be put up other places and I've had to I'm I'm in the middle of this like huge revision because at first I was like well maybe I can rewrite it and be like but but now like fuck JK Rowling, <laughs> like add that. And I was like, no, it's not enough. Like I don't want to give her airtime. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how to um how to make the play still work without. Could you insert a different um, you know, series, like the Mockingbird situation? What was that one called? <laughs> uh Hunger the Hunger Games. Hunger Games, like something on those lines. I'm, I'm or... trying to figure that out. Um the whole like it it was mirroring this theme of like betrayal and like be trusting too easily like it's like just honing in on like certain relationships within those books here i am mm-hmm. being like i don't want to give her airtime and then i'm like let me talk about her character relationships on the podcast um <laughs> well, we can move away from jk Rowling. no no yeah i mean so so you've obviously written about things and you're reworking them yeah um how else has this idea of um what you thought you knew and then what you relearn or what you learn later influenced you so massively um that's sort of the the crux of why i think why we're talking today yeah um is this idea of like um i thought things were one way and they were actually another specifically when it's i thought things were black and white and it turns out they're gray Mm -hmm. um especially when that comes to one's own involvement in certain situations um i so i i've lived in new york city for oh my god i don't know like almost 14 years i think i just had a mini crisis like (laughs) sorry i need to pause and just like go evaluate your life just like (laughs) rethink everything um and i for a little over a year moved to la and while i was there um long story short sort of started content warning most likely (laughs) content warning for sure yeah (laughs) I don't even know what's well okay at the beginning of the play I wrote about this I say for content warning I say powerful man Mm -hmm. like it sort of turns into a joke of like is that a trigger warning but I think it is like Mm -hmm. um so I started working for this man and his sort of group of artist friends um and without getting into like every single detail that would take up the whole podcast, um, it turns out he was grooming his fans who were of age. But, you know, this man was in his, if I'm remembering correctly, like mid to late 30s. Fans were 20 years younger, like just barely of legal age, grooming them, having sexual relationships of some sort with them, and then kind of gaslighting them and leaving them and doing it in this like mass sort of in like mass quantities Mm -hmm. um and he was your direct employer yeah well sort of he yes I guess so Mm -hmm. it's it's the reason I'm hesitating is because part of what was so weird about the situation that's a whole other like um can of worms is that I wasn't always being paid Mm -hmm. but um and there wasn't like a w-2 form it would be like here is like two hundred dollars in cash in cash yeah Mm -hmm. yeah things like that and so initially I wrote this play that's now called bad people um, which is actually my second play, kind of inspired by this man. But um, in, when I was first writing it, it was all about like being abandoned and being a victim and like realizing someone wasn't who you thought they were. And as I have like gone through my own therapy and my own sort of uh, emotional, spiritual journey, 
and just matured as a person, um, it's become more of a process of being like, wait a minute, like, at what point was I aware of what was going on and doing mental gymnastics to um, make it okay in my own mind? Mm -hmm. um, and while it's not as intense as like other people's stories, like folks who are survivors of cults like Nexium, um, mm -hmm. things like that, where I'm like, oh, there was like, like heavily illegal activity going on. So it's not like, oh my God, am I going to go to jail? <laughs> it's just, oh my God, like I kind of sat there and found ways to be like, no, no, I need this guy. So he can't be bad. Mm -hmm. While um, highly, not illegal, but highly immoral things were going on. Mm -hmm. um, and in the context of a massive power imbalance. Yeah. Um, and then that, you know, unrolls this whole process of like, oh my God, am I a bad person? Was I like a brainwashed victim? Like, do I have no responsibility in this? Cause I was just so traumatized and brainwashed or like, um, or is it somewhere in the middle? I, first of all, thank you for yeah. sharing. Um, and I want to name before we even start that, um, what we're talking about is vulnerable and um, personal and, um, you know, for anybody listening, protect yourself if you need to. Um, yes, please. And also, you know, I think a huge reason why I'm curious to delve into whatever this conversation um, decides to be is because so many of us um, have found ourselves in situations ranging, obviously, um, where we do exactly what you just talked about, which is we either ascribe um, the this is the way it's supposed to be and therefore this is okay, or we assume that it's been done this way for so long and this just is the way that it is and you just have to accept it. Yeah. Um, we've all been in a varied degreeing situation of, of these kinds of situations. Um, mundane to not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so we don't talk about this as a phenomena of not trusting ourselves, of not trusting our gut, of gaslighting ourselves um, based off of external circumstances. And so I, 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 I'm excited to really just begin to talk about that with you um, because I think a lot of us feel like we have to think about it and experience it on our own as opposed to recognizing that people are navigating versions of this all over the place. I'm curious for you as you've been unpacking this experience and putting it into art, which is a very different thing too, how you've been able to gauge your gut and how you've been able to trust your gut. And we can talk about it from when you were in it to now to the creating of it, when you're fabricating, and we can talk about it in any capacity, but I'm curious about the trusting of your gut. That's an incredible question. I love that question. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna sort of have to like talk it out and figure sure. out the answer to this as we go. Um, I mean, the, so first of all, now, like me now, I, I really trust my gut. 
Okay. Um, what does that mean for you? How do you feel it in you? What is, how does it work? So for me personally, and again, like Jennifer and I talked like at the beginning of this, we're not therapists. We're not mm -hmm. like anything I say is, is my own experience and my own like musings. Um, for me, it's trusting the work that I've done. That's the first thing is trusting the work that I've done, the emotional work, just the the work of like existing as a human for the time in between who I was then and who I am now. Mm -hmm. um, the the sort of like deep diving I've done into myself and um, into like understanding all the intricacies of what I went through in this specific experience. And then on top of that is trusting my body, meaning I have found that my body, if I'm in a situation that some part of me knows, like my gut knows this is not okay, this isn't good, I will physically feel it. Where? For me, it's like my stomach and my chest. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm, I'm naturally like an anxious person, right? So like, it's pretty easy for me to be like, oh, I'm just like anxious for some reason, whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, I've been learning to know the difference between like, oh, I'm just a little anxious and being like, no, this situation is not good. And it like, it can be that even if it's something that's pretty low stakes, like, yeah, Oh, I'm interviewing for this like coffee shop job. Um, uh, like I, my gut is telling me this is a bad fit. Like I feel it in my body. It can be anything from something like that kind of every day to like, oh, this person is dangerous. Like this, I don't trust this person. This person reminds me of people I've encountered in the past with like, you know, tendencies that aren't safe. Um, I think that like trusting that has been a game changer for me. How did you learn to hone in on that? therapy for mm -hmm. sure um also just experience mm -hmm. just of noticing putting the, of, of like tuning into your body in yeah, these moments yeah and noticing like like looking historically at like the patterns of like oh i felt this thing about about this situation or person and went with it anyway and look how it ended up and noticing like oh i was feeling this then and like that feeling was correct like mm -hmm. i should have just listened to it in the first place mm -hmm. um but back to your your sort of original question it, it that like that's such a good question because it does lead um into that gray area of like when when are we complicit and when like when is our ability to listen to our gut like um clouded mm -hmm. which like i don't <laughs> i don't know the answer to but it's something i think about a lot um because so this situation, which is obviously like falls under the umbrella of the Me Too movement, um, is also something that I've often compared to like the situation of folks who um, become enamored by like a, a cult leader or, mm -hmm. or you know, join a cult. Um, not that I would use that exact language for my exact experience, but um, people like, like the, the man that I dealt with are very good at like finding people who are especially vulnerable in one mm -hmm. way or another. For me at that time, I had just sort of, I had just moved across, across the country. I had lost a whole group of friends just from like, just like a silly falling out. Um, and like, I was having trouble like at home with like just some like family drama and he just like could tell. And all of his victims had a similar, mm -hmm. um, like he mentioned once, like, oh, you can tell by looking at someone's eyes and like if they're like sunken in sort of, you can like see that they're like going through trauma, like super creepy. I should also, I use the word victim, obviously gray area again, but um, it is like this question I always have of like, in a situation like that, is someone like me 
like like the me then in that situation mm-hmm. is our ability to trust our gut clouded by the influence of that person and which, by the being enamored is that what yeah, you're saying yeah mm-hmm. yeah being like totally dependent on that person um and at the same time how does that affect one's culpability mm-hmm. and i think they kind of both exist at a in a contrasting way at the same time where it's like yes judgment is clouded and um in a way it doesn't matter in the end that your judgment's clouded yeah like why doesn't it matter or explain um, that more i guess it's not that it doesn't matter but that like um it's not like i would like how can i put this actions still speak a million words mm-hmm. and um even if it like okay maybe i can explain this better with an example so like i think a lot about allison mack with nexium she's like serving yeah. a prison time right now for well, obviously this is a like much larger scale situation she was like recruiting people who were being branded um you know and were being sexually abused by the leader of nexium mm-hmm. um she was very clearly brainwashed at the time you know under that influence and yet and i feel very very sympathetic for her mm. being in that situation and empathetic to a certain sense and at the same time I think she absolutely needs to be held accountable for all of her actions and not let off the hook in any way just because she was in a terrible position. I forget exactly what it's called. I learned about it when I thought I was going to be a psych major in undergrad and took some psych classes. Um, But there was that experiment that was done in a prison where they had two different um, groups of people, some that were going to pretend to be the prisoners and some that were going to be the wardens. Right. I remember hearing about this. Yeah. And and truly, and like these people became embodied by their job descriptions. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like a whole... simulation basically of like, oh my God, the power hunger prison guards, the people who were prisoners, the status shifting. And in this experiment really showed that like people are capable of A, so much more than we think that they are Mm -hmm. for good or for worse morally. But also um, when you put them in a container where there are circumstances that dictate certain actions, whether it is... um, peer pressure or whether it's like internal drive, people are apt to take on those circumstances um, as their own. Yeah. Um, I think you're bringing up an interesting, you know, thing around um, actions still have repercussions. Yeah. Um, or they should. And, or they should. Um, and um, it's kind of like intent versus impact. I think about that a lot where you yeah. can say something and you, your intention was super positive and your impact on a person can be devastating. Well, you did I, not go in thinking it was going to be awful, right. but you hurt somebody desperately. And like, just to sort of like give some context to like my exact role in this, I'm still unpacking this, but like, as it stands right now, my, my feelings are like my biggest crime was the act of like turning a blind eye on what was going on, which is like not okay. Um, That and things like I reference in my play. Um, There was a day when like this man was like, can I pay you $200 to like do some like house chores for me? And that included like changing his sheets between women he slept with. And when I say women, I mean like like 18, 19 year year old people. Um, 
And like, that's yucky. And I, I, this is kind of jumping from like A to F, but um, sort of back to like the process of like uncovering all of this and accepting it and like understanding it for myself. Um, I think like, I know this podcast is so much about artists talking about like their process and things like that. One of the things that has like helped me more than anything else besides maybe therapy is writing about this in my plays and otherwise just like without having a final consensus on the situation. Mm -hmm. So like while I'm processing it and mulling it over, like actively writing about it, even if that whatever I write changes down Mm -hmm. the line. How have you been able to channel this into art what is your process Mm -hmm. for that because arguably many people go the opposite direction which is like this has happened and I don't want to talk about it I want to suppress it I want to either pretend it doesn't happen or I want to work through it in therapy and not necessarily bring it into my creative spaces for me it wasn't really a choice it was like what was keeping me going Mm -hmm. um I had and still struggle with but not nearly as much like I had very pronounced PTSD when I first returned to New York after this experience. Um, And it was really like a lifeline for me, just being able to put it down on the page and write about this like from my perspective, but also from an outsider's perspective. I think that it was a necessary tool and I can't say it enough, just a lifeline in terms of being able to process. Um, And at the time when I was writing it, I, I wasn't thinking about an audience. I wasn't thinking like, oh, and I think that then this will go up and all these people will have access to it and, you know, be able to comment on it. It was just like, I don't know what else to do. And for me, there's only so much time I can spend journaling before I'm like, okay, I'm just sitting in the soup. Like I'm sitting Mm -hmm. in my own grief and angst and confusion. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas when you're writing, creating something artistic, for me, like my favorite medium is playwriting it gives it a little bit more distance. Well, I was going to ask why a play and not a book, why a play and not a short film, why, you know, like, why was this the medium through which you express yourself? But I guess if playwriting is your thing. Well, I can, specifically, it's, it's my thing because I'm obsessed with the way people talk. I'm obsessed with dialogue. And Mm -hmm. um, I think in theater more than film or any other like sort of written medium like that, um, there's more time for just talking. Like mm-hmm. in a in a if if you read a in my experience, reading a, a a screenplay versus a play, like the screenplay, like the the scenes are really quick. They sort of get to the point. There's a lot of space left for like um for the visual of filmmaking, sure. which is something I don't understand how to create. Um so writing for the stage or this also ended up being for for audio, there's more space to just like really dig into the the weird isms of the way people talk and the like you know different regionalisms and different hesitation noises and like just weird ways people string together sentences it's like Mm -hmm. that's what I'm so obsessed with with playwriting as you went through it what have you found to be healing for yourself what have you found to um be a release um once it's been out once it's been out or I guess we can go into like, yeah, as you wrote it. As I wrote it, it was, that was literally creating new perspectives for myself. Mm-hmm. I was like able to, it was like a, a bird's eye view of everything. 
And I was able to just look at it objectively and think like, wow, this was like, when you're looking at it from up here, it's just like, wow, this was like a really bad situation. Mm -hmm. And that helped with the grief of, I mean, a big part of my grief, my PTSD was this, was the aspect of like my loss from being sort of thrown out by this man who was effectively a cult leader who kind of made the call that I was no longer a part of this. Um, and having that perspective made began the process of me starting to feel like, oh, maybe it's a very good thing I'm removed from this. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like one little snippet of ways in which it helped. But yeah. it also just, like you said, I think you used the word cathartic. Like it is, it is just pure catharsis. You mm-hmm. know, you can write this really emotionally charged scene. You can write things you wish you'd said. That's my favorite thing is like, mm here's the scene where I just chew this guy out, which I never did in uh, real life. But now I kind of feel as if I did, or like I feel as if I handled this situation better, you know? Yeah. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about in the way beginning, which is just like this idea of rewriting or rewiring or like relearning, unlearning, whatever. It's like you get to, in this capacity, have agency over the way in which you want to remember it and store it in your body. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's it's an interesting um, use of autonomy, really, mm-hmm. to be able to have the gumption and the ability to take something of this magnitude, put it into art, and allow that to heal yourself and hopefully yeah. others. Well, um, and and going back to your question where you said, I can't remember how you put it, but asked about the the healing process once it's out and other people are are reacting to it and receiving yeah. it. Um, one thing that was I didn't expect that has been incredible is how many people relate to it and relate to parts of it that aren't even the crux of the piece. Like um, with bad people specifically, I've had people say like, oh my God, I've never heard. I sort of, I, t- I touch upon like um, this like intense separation anxiety between friends, between like platonic friends mm-hmm. and like um, going through this this period of time feeling like, wait, but you're leaving. I might never see you again. And so many people were like, wow, I've, I've felt that before. And I thought that I was really weird. And like, I thought no one else felt that way. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. not really what this play is about, but that's really cool that people connected with that. And then there were also, you know, bigger things of people saying I've experienced, you know, I've been me too in a similar way. I've experienced um, a similar sort of abuse that isn't as easily put into a box. Yeah. Have you found that now that it's out or you've, you know, used this as a vehicle for you to process that it lives in you differently? Yes, is the easy answer to that. I thought when I released this that I'd be like, okay, it's done. Like now I can move on. There is, so obviously I keep talking about Nexium. Um, Sarah Edmondson, who's an incredible actor and podcaster mm-hmm. and um, a hero for the way she escaped Nexium and helped other people do so. Um, she is one of the people, she, I, I don't know her, I've never met this person, but she's one of the people that I was like, oh, I should like speak up more. Um, and she like after Keith Raniere, who was the leader of Nexium after he was um, sentenced to like more than life in prison. I think it was like 130 years and he's already like, I think he's like in his 60s. So it was like a death sentence. She like posted this picture on Instagram of her just like double flipping off the camera and saying like, great, time to move on with my life. 
something like that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to release bad people. Like Audible is going to release bad people. And then I'm going to have my like double bird. I'm done. Time to move on with my life moment. And Mm -hmm. like that didn't happen. Like I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, it wasn't a magic button. Now this is done. Like I'm not affected by this anymore. Um, So it definitely lives in like a kind of like, okay, I like released my child into the world and I released my child being the play. And I released, I released this like very vulnerable story into the world. Um, Now what? Like, that's kind of how I feel. So I feel like a little, um, I keep thinking of this like tippy thing, like a little unbalanced about it. Mm. Um, Also because, you know, I keep referencing like this, I do consider this a Me Too story. Um, And I consider it my Me Too story. And it's also not like any other Me Too, like it, it doesn't fit into this box. It's like, I was not directly sexually abused by this man I was adjacent to all of like I was the I witnessed I was like aware of this like serial um abuse Mm -hmm. that he was doing um and I was like very much caught up in his cycle of psychological manipulation and um like codependent behavior and um I like was used, abused, discarded in the same way that other people were. It was just minus the the sexual part of it. Well, and, I think you're bringing up something interesting though, which is this yeah. idea of um, like the bystander effect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when one witnesses something happening in front of oneself, mm-hmm. what responsibility do we have to say something? Yeah. And what responsibility do we have to intervene? And when yeah. is your safety paramount over the other person's or are they the same and how do you gauge that? These large, huge moral questions that yeah. are happening in real time. Um, and of- like in this in this case, and I'm guessing it's pretty common, the sort of excuse, I'm doing air quotes, which we know is great for an audio podcast. Um, <laughs> The excuse was, oh, he's just behaving like a rock star. Mm-hmm. And like, there was this sort of communal like, oh yeah, he's just behaving like a rock star. That's what rock stars do. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of glorified like 70s, like 70s rock star image. And everyone was mm-hmm. like, oh, it's just that. And I initially, and for quite a, a while, was one of those people. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, he's just a rock star. Yeah. Like, Well, again, it's the justification I don't know whether this situation is like the gaslighting of oneself when you know that something's off. Yeah. Um, but I guess I'm interested in this idea, though, of people who find themselves on the periphery yeah. of these situations. And um, not that you – I'm not saying you were necessarily, but when it's the action that we're referring to isn't happening directly to you, but you are either aware of it, watching it, privy to it the sense of responsibility that we have as human beings to do, and I say this in large air quotes as well, like what's right. Yep. And how that question can also sometimes feel overwhelming to know um, when you're gauging, again, like your own safety and Mm -hmm. your own biases and your own privilege 
yeah. in relation to somebody else's experience. Um, I think it's just an interesting question and a moral quandary that I often grapple with myself. Um, in grad school, I created a solo show literally called The Bystander Effect. Wow. Um, and it's all about my Jewish identity and on the byline, I guess, is like unpacking the blessings and burdens of um, a Jewish identity, my Jewish identity. Um, and it's a solo show. And it grapples with that question um, of what is our response, obviously through the lens of, you know, a Jewish lens, but um, for people who are not and people who are and don't necessarily feel connected to their, you know, their Jewish identity, like what is one's responsibility to anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm. What is one's responsibility to um, harm? Um, those were like the larger questions of the play. And so I think about that often. Um, and how, also how survivors of anything are often um, not believed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I say like of anything really, you know, and how um, it's very rare and requires a lot of backing and um, outrage and verbal affirmations in order for some people to actually be heard and listened to. Mm -hmm. And I just think about these things generally as just larger questions of, of what does it mean to listen? What does it mean to be responsible for yourself and others? What does it mean to intervene? What does it mean to not be complicit? What does it mean to turn a blind eye? What does it mean for oneself when one's experienced something to like gaslight oneself to fit in or to not feel the trauma. I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm certainly not a therapist and I'm also not claiming to answer any of these questions, but I think that these yeah. are things that many of us and especially artists who deal with the human condition and storytelling think about. Yeah. Um, and arguably it's also like what makes the most compelling of art is when we're dealing with these larger questions. Um, I'm curious for you, as you continue writing new pieces, as you potentially rewrite that old piece, as you come to this piece that's being produced um, in different spaces and having different visions for what it is when it's mounted on its feet, how are you continuously grappling with these large questions as they come up? Well, one thing I'm really glad you brought up is this, the like intersectionality of all of this. Um, you, I think you said survivors of any kind, like believe survivors of any kind. Um, that's really what it's about. This is where the gray area we've been talking about all comes together. And it really is that it like it is a part of the human experience. Which and it is. Also, which is like, like what is the part of the human experience? Of not being believed, mm -hmm. of not believing someone else. Or of, oneself like, potentially. Yeah, or oneself of like, mm -hmm. and it. I, I would venture that it's mostly oppressed people and minorities um i mean i would pretty confidently say that mm -hmm. but um also the experience which i keep touching upon of looking back and realizing oh i wasn't letting myself believe mm -hmm. people when i should have mm -hmm. and i think and that is there like culpability and guilt in that for you for sure for sure mm -hmm. and there's also i mean 
like moving through that, moving through the guilt and the shame of, oh, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done this. There's, there's like kind of on the other side of that is what do I do next? What do I do differently? And for me, that's two things. For One is creating art around the experience of mm-hmm. the sort of thesis of belief survivors. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like what I feel like, I, I don't know if thesis is the right word, but that's sort of like the crux of my work now. I'd say it's like your why statement or your my value why statement. statement. Yeah. yeah, your mission statement around yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to mean people who have been Me Too or people who've been sexually abused or people who have been in a cult-like situation. It's universal of believing mm-hmm. survivors. Yeah. How do you feel that we can do a better job of that? I think that I'm figu- I'm still figuring that out. But for me, it has to do more with looking forward than dwelling in the past. So with my own experience, like there's, you know, I wish I'd handled it differently. I wish there were things that I had been capable of um, emotionally. I wish that I, you know, could rewrite how everything happened and, and go back and like kind of be a hero about it. And like, I just can't do that. So for me, it's about moving forward and um, using my own bad experience to motivate me to like help prevent as much as I can that from happening to other people, especially people in vulnerable situations like I and the other victims of that same person were in, um, which you and I have briefly touched upon um, this idea of parasocial online relationships um, and the power imbalance there and how that um, creates- Explain for anybody listening what that is. So I wish I had a more concise definition, but a A parasocial relationship is basically a one-sided relationship, meaning say that you're you're a famous YouTuber, Instagrammer, influencer, something like that, um, and I am one of your fans. And you release a podcast or a video every day and you're very open about your life. And I am just watching it and listening to it. And I really feel like connected to you and close to you and like, oh, I know all this information. Like you've told me these secrets, like we're really close. But you have no idea who I am because I am just a consumer. But then if we were to meet in person, I look up to you in this very intense way and feel this, this intense bond. And it's like that the part of my brain that might think, oh, well, well, Jennifer's actually never met me. Like that's sort of like, um, overridden because I'm like, no, but she's shared like her deepest, darkest secrets with me. She's like, you know, shared this joke with me that made me laugh. She made me feel better when I was going through a breakup. And that then if you are someone who is like the man I dealt with, that's where it's easy for the abuse to come in because Mm -hmm. um, you are in this place of power that I'm not in. I think you walk on water and often in these situations, the person who is on a pedestal um, is much older and mm. then like the, the fan and the consumer is a child or a teenager or someone who's in a very compromised, vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, oi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a slippery slope to be talking about any of this because it's like there's so many examples, there's so many stories, there's so many circumstances um, to refer to, to um, call back towards. Um, 
And it's just, I think, unfortunately, especially with social media too, which has its perks in this way also of like spreading truth, depending Mm -hmm. on how people define that, and also people having a platform to actually share what's happened to them if they choose to in a way that, you know, 10, 15 years ago was a lot harder. Um, So it's this double-edged sword of news travels really quickly, as does fake news. And then, you know, truth and people's stories also travel really quickly, which which spreads awareness. Um, And so it all feels really rampant. Yeah, that's the perfect (laughs) word for it. The noise of which much of it is really problematic and needs to be listened to. But it goes back to what we were talking about of the listening, you know, and I guess yeah. I'm curious for you, how do you protect the heaviness? How do you protect your joy? How do you protect the levity? How do you come back to finding happiness and positivity without it being toxic, obviously? But yeah. how do you come back to those things when it all really feels dire and overwhelming and um, relentless? You mean in the context of this like what we were sure, in the context of this and also generally for you as a human when, you know, mm-hmm. if you are dealing in these darker, heavier, deeper, traumatic memories R- and oh, I creating see art in that mm-hmm. fashion, you are immersed in that. Mm-hmm. How do you come out of it? How do you counterbalance that? How do you remind yourself of all the parts of your humanity? I think a big part of it for me um, has been allowing myself to fully feel the weight of the, the dark feelings that come out of this. Um, because in my experience, trying to push them away and, and like choosing happy <laughs> has been toxic and has been just ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating space for those feelings and like honoring them um, because they are a part of the process. And then while allowing them to exist, also taking time to actively experience joy. And by that, I mean doing things that feel like play, which what for feels me- feels like play to you, yeah. <laughs> well, for me, it's, I, it's probably gonna be very specific for other people, for each individual person. But for me, a lot of it has to do with my, um, I do aerial silks cool. and like, you know, it's getting back into my body by doing aerial silks and um, surrounding myself with that community. It's also being outside and being with friends who can just be like supremely goofy, like mm-hmm. doing something really stupid. And I don't mean like reckless. I mean, like, let's sit around with our friends and like make butt jokes, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Like that for me is the opposite of yeah of the darkness. Well, I think it's coming back to your, to your humanity, right? I think yeah. if we're talking about the human condition and you are brave enough to be delving into the darker parts of what it means to talk about the human condition and experience the human condition and the 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 less um shiny and more in the darkness, you know, parts of what it means to be a human. Yeah. You can't just tell those stories if you don't have or know the opposite, mm-hmm. which without, you know, the faking of it, just what is happiness, what is joy, what is feeling alive and connected. Um, you know, I think about that so often with art and young artists that I, you know, coach and 
in master classes that I teach. And it's always like, well, how do you, you know, stay, how do you keep things alive and how do you stay grounded and how do you, what's self-care? And for me, that's actually not the question. The question is like, how do I come back to my humanity? How do I center myself? How do I find me? And that is, as you kind of said, like for me, it's nature. For me, it's mountains, my dog, you know. Yeah, my cats. New things. Exactly. And if I don't give myself time to be in those spaces and experience those things for myself, I'm unable to bring myself as a full artist because I'm robbing myself of the full human experience. I can't only tell hard stories with hardness. I need to, you know, I I need to be able to color with many different colors, not because I want it to be pretty, but because that is what it means to be a complicated person on this planet who experiences a lot of things that are in conflict with each other and are in contradiction with each other. And um, to be able to really build a life that is full so that you can not just sit in the dark (laughs) when those things are really heavy, um, you know, I think is a helpful reminder, especially when it's heavy, to do one thing for yourself that brings you joy. Um, Glennon Doyle, as I referenced so much on this podcast, has an episode all about delight and how um, you can, you know, like send her and her dad for a period of time would like send each other texts of one thing that delighted them in the day. Um, Or like what are ways that you can be really purposeful about sharing delight Um, which is a different word than joy, you know, like what excites you, what fills you with giddiness. And I think those things are really important to bring into our lives, especially when we are going through hard times. And it can be really hard to do that (laughs) when it's hard. I really like that word delight because joy is kind of shrouded by this like toxic positivity which is so and- annoying because all these words just keep getting commandeered. I'm yeah. just, you know, it used to be like the word authentic. I used to love that word. And now it's yeah. like, find your authenticity. And I'm like, what What You're does like, that no. even mean? And that's been shrouded. Self-care, what does that yeah. even mean really anymore? That's shrouded. Yeah. Like all these things have been commandeered and commercialized and capitalism. Well, and like everyone them. pairs it with the word choose, <laughs> like choose joy, choose happy, mm. choose, like choose, oh, gratitude is another one. Because like, I like gratitude has been such a big thing for me, but like yeah, that word is now same. awful. Like, well, it's not awful, but it's also like I have to like reclaim it somehow. Yeah, no, no I mean like that word is like it's awful to so many people because it's oh. been it's been like so hard. Well, and it's been like ruined. <laughs> it hasn't been ruined. That's that's dramatic, but like it it's been like tainted by mm-hmm. toxic positivity, where it's like I just chose all this stuff for myself today, and now I'm all better. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a perfect example of like a real life delight thing for me that I feel like goes against toxic positivity is just playing like hours of video games. I have never gotten into video games in my life. I mean, I am Though I just so finished much. one of my most favorite books of all time if you have not yet read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I just finished it as well. Yes. Every single person listening to this podcast yeah, you pick have up to, that book. Yeah. I I that's a, that's something that delighted me for sure. That delight I was I slowed down my reading because I didn't want it to end. I was so it's I am so good. Sad. And I mean, if I if somebody had told me that that was about, you know, like the premise of their bonding was about video games, I would have been like, I'm never picking this up because yeah. I do I never play video games yeah. ever. But no, everybody needs to oh my God, this book. I'm delight. a big true library delight. user. Okay. Like loyal library guard. <laughs> and I'm I so I, I 
checked out tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow from the library read it and i i need to actually purchase a copy because i I just like i need it in my Mm -hmm. house yeah i am an old school physical book reader i have yet to transition into a digital situation for that um I like the ear worming. I love to highlight when I can. I love being able to like visually see where I am on a page and whatever. So one day I'll, you know, save a tree. But um, (laughs) that book, yeah, it's incredible. And the delight of reading that and the escapism. And also going back to our, I mean, just to like, that is a perfect book for how do you create art that balances deep, heavy stuff in a way that also balances the complexities of what it means to be a human being yeah. and create yeah. simultaneously. Just so good. <laughs> it's so good. If we haven't plugged this, in enough, everyone yeah, is must this go read like it. A, is this becoming a book club? It's Unclear. seriously just like a, a fan podcast for that book. Oh my God. Yeah, we're just <laughs> we're just talking about all these things that – Anyway, um, I'm so grateful that we went on this abstract yet um, intense conversation around these really large, vulnerable, brave, um, feeling concepted, these aren't words, um, you know, experiences that many of us have on varying levels. Um, And so I want to thank you for going on this journey to even just name these things, um, which takes a lot, and to put your experience into words so that other people can hopefully hear versions of themselves in it and begin to maybe process or think about the way that they move through the world in a different way. Um, I'm grateful that you're creating art so that people can do it through um, that form of consumption if um, that is more palpable for them. So, and thank you for trusting me with um, your story and your um, vulnerability in this space. So thank you. Thank you for making me feel so safe and welcome. Thank you. You know, I'm coming on here as a a big fan of this podcast, so (laughs) it's cool to be on the other side of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for anybody who wants to read your work, who is more curious about this story, who wants to work with you, um, where within your boundaries is the best way for people to reach out? Best way for people to reach out is either through Instagram, which is at Katie Schwartzy. I had to think about that for a minute. (laughs) K-A-T-I-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-I-E. Um, you can also go to badpeopleaudioplay.com if you're interested in the the play I've referenced a million times mm-hmm. today. It is available on Audible and Spotify and iTunes, but that's sort of the central hub for finding all of those links. Um, and you can also go to my website, which is katieschwartz.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jennifer. In podcast land, there are a couple of things that you can do to help this podcast meet other people who want to be enjoying these conversations. For starters, please like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast. And most importantly, review us. Although it may seem like a small act to you, it means the most to us. 
If you do not enjoy this episode or this podcast, just let it all slide. If you are not yet doing so, please follow us on Instagram at Empowered Artist Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artist Collective, more on our website at empoweredartistcollective.com. And if you are wanting to be kept in the loop, we have that link for our email in the show notes. Also, if you are seeking some fun merchandise, we have that in the show notes as well. As always, I am so endlessly grateful that you keep on coming back and we will be back again next week. Until then.